In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. It is March, hope you all are doing well, and as Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary is fast upon us, this is a great time to reminisce about the history of the resort. Author Christopher E. Smith, who has written about Walt Disney World over the years, has a new book entitled A Magical Half Century, stories celebrating Walt Disney World's first 50 years. We discuss many of those tales in this really lively conversation. I'm sure you'll discover something new. I know I sure did. Let's get into that conversation with Christopher E. Smith. Here on Notably Disney, we continue to recognize the forthcoming 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World, uh, which is now billed as the world's most magical celebration through a look at the books and music celebrating the Vacation Kingdom. And today's guest is Christopher E. Smith, the author of many books on the subject matter of Walt Disney World. Um, some previous titles have included the, World, the Walt Disney World That Never Was and the Backstories and Magical Secrets of Walt Disney World series. Uh, he's a Disney historian, author, and attorney, and has most recently published a very timely title entitled uh, A Magical Half Century stories celebrating Walt Disney World's first 50 years. Uh, and I recently enjoyed this delightful book. It has a hodgepodge of history and humor. Really excited to discuss it. Welcome to Notably Disney, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be on and, and, and obviously excited to talk about uh, A Magical Half Century. I had uh, a ton of fun uh, writing it and uh, uh, had, I think, just as much fun uh, when I get a chance to talk about it. Well, let's get straight, straight into it. I know that, as I said in the intro, you are quite well-versed with Walt Disney World, and I'm kind of curious behind the origins of developing this book. Uh, given your familiarity, given your um, notability on as being an author on this topic more broadly. So what were kind of the incremental steps that led up to developing this particular endeavor? 
Yeah, you know, that, that, that's a good question. Uh, you know, obviously, I, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of, of Disney history. And, uh, you know, just have, for, for many years, I've just immersed myself into, you know, as many books and, and, and other resources as I can to, to study different aspects of, of, of the Disney company generally and, and Walt Disney World specifically. And, you know, I think we have, have, you know, kind of big Disney fans like we both are have, have looked towards this year, you know, for a while now in terms of this big 50th anniversary um, for the Walt Disney World uh, Park that is coming up uh, in October of this year. And so, you know, a few years ago, um, as I was working on some other some other book projects, uh, you know, I, I kind of made the decision, you know, I'd really like to do something special that, that, that really, you know, commemorates, um, you know, that 50th anniversary. And so, just started thinking about different ways that I could do that. Um, you know, I, I thought long and hard about just doing a, a deep historical dive into, into those 50 years. Um, you know, I've got, a have got a history background and, you know, and some other titles have a, have a very big historical slant to them. But, uh, but the more I thought about it, you know, I, I thought, man, I just want to do a book that is just really fun. Right. And, and it's almost impossible in, in one in one book to really capture 50 years worth of stories and, and 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 details and so I just decided to you know what I'm just going to take kind of a scattershot approach to this think of some really fun topics uh, you know that I, that I think that that other Disney fans like me would like to read about um, and 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 just go for it and 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 do so in a way that I think gives readers a taste of, of, of really fun stories, but also stories that kind of span that entire 50 years from, you know, the initial opening in, in, in 71 and even before that, really, in some of these stories right up into uh, until the present. And, and that's what I did and uh, am very proud of, of, of the book and the stories. And it's gotten just a tremendous uh, amount of positive feedback to this point. So um, it was you know, I'll say a unique approach uh, in terms of, of, of just kind of being a lot of what I'll say random stories. Uh, but I think each of them are, are, are a lot of fun. And I think, um, you know, for a lot of readers, um, it'll be a lot of uh, new and cool information that they, they didn't know about uh, uh, before, before reading the book. Absolutely. And I, I guess I want to also acquaint readers with some examples of chapters that you cover in the book, um, many of them on specific attractions like Star Wars, Rise of the Resistance, obviously. Um, as you put it, the pinnacle of 50 years of uh, Disney Imagineering, you covered the American Adventure, Carousel of Progress, the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, among others. Um, and in addition to these deep dives on particular attractions, Chris, you also cover some of what I would say are very niche topics like weather vanes in Walt Disney World. I, I recognize when there's been so much published on Walt Disney World across so many different spaces that uh, it can almost seem like there's oversaturation of certain content. But what I appreciated about your work is that um, in many ways is complementary. And as you said, you picked a lot of just fun, unique topics. So can you talk about how you actually um, decided on diving into these particular avenues? Yeah, so you know, you know, my my series of books that is still in process uh, called the Backstories and Magical Secrets of Walt Disney World. You know, kind of the, the you know the premise of that book uh, or series of books is that you know 
what separates Walt Disney World uh, from other theme parks out there are all of these just wonderful backstories and, and these storytelling details that are out there uh, for not only the attractions, but for restaurants and shops and, 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 and everything in between uh, that really allows guests to really kind of step in, step inside these stories. And so, um, you know, for, for the 50th book, I wanted to really try to hit things that I thought kind of in those niche categories that were really unique. And, uh, you know, using, using weather vanes as an example, I, you know, I, I, I love the chapter and I love the concept just because, you know, even for someone like me who has visited the theme parks, you know, just countless times, um, you know, every time I go to the parks, I still see something new, right? And it, it just, just, just amazes me, you know, each time I do. And, you know, some of the details that I had overlooked for many years were these different weather vanes that, you know, you know, in the, in the Magic Kingdom specifically, that sit atop many buildings. I had just completely missed those. And so a couple of years ago in the parks, I had noticed one or two. And, you know, for a guy like me, that just really sparked my imagination in terms of, well, how many other really cool weather vanes can I find? And I, it kind of starts a, a scavenger hunt research process. And I'm so glad I did that because, as you, as you know from reading the book, so many fun weather vanes that are out there that, you know, you know, number one are just just cool, but but number two, in a lot of cases, tie in thematically to the attraction or the building that they're a part of, and are kind of what I call, you know, the icing on the on the thematic cake uh, for these experiences, and just 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 a ton of fun. Yeah, and what's also helpful too are to see the illustrations of these weather vanes, and you have several examples uh, related to Peter Pan's flight, which when I see at the top of the chapter that it's going to focus on weather vanes and Magic Kingdom, and I, I, I said to myself, Brett, you know, I, I don't know if I've really thought about this all that much, but one attraction that I think lends itself to that is a is an attraction all about flight, and sure enough, um, you you recognize just how intricate they are, whether it's um, TikTok, the crocodile, or Peter, or uh, Captain Hook's uh, Jolly Roger pirate ship, they're, they're really works of art. Yeah, there's no doubt. And, and I certainly encourage anyone uh, who, has ha who has not noticed those, those weather vanes uh, that, that are perched atop the Peter Pan's flight show building to go check those out because they really are. I mean, to your point, you've got the Jolly Roger where you know, it's just so intricately detailed, you know, cannons and flags and, and, and masts, and, and it's just wonderful. And then the TikTok Croc uh, weather vane is, is one of my personal favorites because, you know, if you, if you really look at it, you know, there's this sly look on, on the Croc's face that, again, just that level of detail, you can't help but smile and laugh when you see that. And kind of just backing up a little bit, you know, again, just talking about the things that make Walt Disney World different. Um, you know, Disney Imagineers, you know, didn't have to add these weather vanes to any of these areas, including Peter Pan's Fly, right? I mean, it's a, Peter Pan's Fly is a classic attraction. The lines are always long. There's always a great demand for it. You know, weather vanes were not something that they needed to put up there to, to bring in more visitors they did it to just add that extra thematic touch, right? That, that extra, that plus, right? As, as Walt used to say, plusing the experience. And 
I just really appreciate that so much. Um, and, and, you know, going over to, to the Haunted Mansion and, and Memento Mori, the gift shop beside that, you know, seeing the bat and the axe that are used as weather vanes there, I think is fantastic. Um, the, the uh, you know, one of my personal favorite, actually it probably is my personal favorite weather vane is in land. And it's the, the squid weather vane that uh, is adjacent to the, uh, the Little Mermaid uh, New Dark Ride. And, you know, paying homage to, uh, you know, the attraction that formerly occupied that footprint, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which was also my favorite attraction as a child, right? And, and again, you know, that weather vane, that squid weather vane is not going to bring in any additional fans, uh, but it honors, you know, the work of Imagineers of the past. And for people like me who remember that attraction, uh, you know, every time I walk by it, I have to look up and smile. It just, it just, it, it's those type of little differences that I think separate Disney. But it's also, you know, then again, that's why it's a chapter in the book. Those are details that even well-versed Disney travelers miss, right? You know, that they, they, they don't take the time to look up and, and see these weather vanes. And, and uh, they're just, they're just so much fun once you do start noticing them. And, and and find new ones that are out there that even I haven't mentioned in the book. Oh, I think there's going to be a whole uh, scavenger hunt of weather vanes that emerge as a result of uh, this title being released. And uh, one, I guess, parallel to a point that you just made there, Chris, in terms of Disney paying homage to attractions past um, occupying the same spaces in the chapter about package films and, and where those appear in the park, you, of course, um, illustrate the, the much beloved uh, but uh, now long extinct Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at Walt Disney World and how there are Easter eggs scattered and, and many Disney fans know there's a picture frame um, on the attraction that shows Mr. Toad handing uh, the deed to Owl. Um, what was it like for you to kind of go back to that era of Disney history that ultimately has a lot of really fascinating content because it was the 40s, it was wartime era and thereafter. And ultimately some of these different properties have manifested at the park, um, at the parks, even if they're not as well known as something like a Pinocchio um, also of the same era. Yeah, the, the, what a fascinating era and, and, and a fascinating kind of historical analysis when you, when you start looking at the 1940s for the Disney company. And you know, that was, you know, that, that World War II era where due to, you know, due to, you know, a lot of your workforce, number one, being, you know, in the military and at war and also financial constraints that, you know, every company was dealing with at the time, uh, you know, Disney moved away from those full length animated features that at, it, it had, you know, a genre it had created and had become famous for and 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 started releasing you know what they what have become known as these package films which are essentially you know much shorter segments and musicals that were just combined to kind of result in something they could they could you know they could they could release and sell and uh, you know for some reason these these package films i think are are some of the most underappreciated you know, uh, uh, you know, works that, that Disney has put out. I, I think they are, they are fantastic. And, you know, one of those in particular, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, which was released in, I believe, 1949, 
um, you know, it had two segments, one that was based on, you know, the wind in the willows, uh, classic stories, uh, by Kenneth Graham and the other, uh, you know, based upon, uh, you know, Washington Irving's, the legend of sleepy hollow, uh, you know, those two, I, I would say that, that particular film, you know, specifically has had such an enormous impact on Walt Disney world. Um, and, and I make a point in the book, uh, yeah, I actually have two chapters that, that cover these topics. One that's devoted solely to the connection between Sleepy Hollow and Walt Disney World. And then another chapter that kind of just looks at all the other uh, portions of, of these different packaged films. But, but Sleepy Hollow in particular, you know, when you start thinking about these, these blockbuster classic Disney films like Mary Poppins and Pinocchio and Alice in Wonderland, you know, the impact of those films on the on the Walt Disney World parks, I would say, is dwarfed by the impact of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, that segment of The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, because it really impacted so many things. The 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 design, the architecture of the Haunted Mansion, Imagineers, you know, drew inspiration from the time period and setting of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, that 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 late 1700s Hudson River Valley you know, stern Dutch Gothic architecture uh, in, in designing the building. And then you have, you know, Sleepy Hollow refreshments there in Liberty Square, which was, which is a clear, you know, the name itself is a, is a tribute, but even the architecture of that building, including that, you know, if anyone's ever, you know, you know, enjoyed a, 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 um, you know, a, 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 a waffle, chicken waffle sandwich, right, which I have many times and have noticed those unique, stair step pitches to the roof of Sleepy Hollow Refreshments. That's actually a close depiction of Washington Irving's home called Sunnyside that he built in Terrytown, New York. Um, you know, across the street at, at uh, the Ye Olde Christmas shop, uh, there's a sign that says, you know, uh, you know, music and, and, and voice lessons by Ichabod Crane, you know, another reference to, to the film. And yeah, I, I, I go with a much deeper dive in the book kind of pointing these out, but for, for that type of impact to be had by a package film, um, I think just 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 so cool and, and, and really just just phenomenal work by the Imagineers and working those in. Another personal favorite of mine, package film wise, is uh, is Melody Time, and that that package film actually included a, you know several different segments that were packaged together. One that was based on Pecos Bill, you know this. This, you know, the rootness, tootness cowboy in the West, um, uh, and then Johnny Appleseed, uh, you know, who, who who hit the road with his tin hat and 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 apple seeds and 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 spread, you know, agriculture throughout the country. Um, you know, if if you've seen those films, you know, it makes a lot more sense when you go into the Pecosville Tall Tale Inn and Cafe in in Frontierland, right? And that restaurant in particular. Is one of my favorites because it is just replete with with tons of fantastic storytelling detail. It's essentially a what I call a tall tale hall of fame, you know. So the backstory is Pecos opened up this watering hole to serve up the tastiest eats and treats this side of the Rio Grande. And when his legendary friends would visit, they would leave behind mementos. And of course, Pecos Bill left behind his six shooters and lassos and some other fun things. Uh, and included amongst those mementos just hanging on the walls of these different dining rooms is uh, is the tin hat of Johnny Appleseed uh, from that Melody Time uh, film. And so I think, you know, again, just the impact that 
the those films I think had on the Disney company helped carry the company through a very trying time, uh, you know, in, in both the company's history and obviously in the nation's history. Uh, and to see those really cool, fun tributes to these package films throughout the parks uh, is, is, again, just, and I hate to keep saying fun, but, but for me, it's a ton of fun to be able to see and, and understand what those tributes actually mean. For sure. And, and that's what's always appreciated about whenever I pick up a, a new Disney book, it's being able to glean new insights that I hadn't in other spaces. And I, I guess I'm wondering from you, Chris, you talk about some of these um, distinct attributes of whether it be um, in the Pecos uh, Bell restaurant or, uh, or other locations. I guess I'm wondering what was your process like in actually quote-unquote gathering the data, right? So I know you talk about um, walking around the, the parks and, and reading through articles. You have a, a really nice uh, bibliography at the end that illustrates some of the sources you consulted, including annual reports, which I think is a, a great tool. What was your process like in, in curating this information and ultimately making sense of all, all this type, all this information to um, distill it into something that's very easy to read and fun to read, more importantly? Yeah, so you know, it's, it, that's a really good question. And the answer to that really depends upon the particular chapter, right? You know, for, for many of these chapters, it, it, it really is just, you know, uh, and I love, as you mentioned at the outset, uh, in my backstory series, you know, kind of exemplifies this. I love doing deep dives into attractions. Right. And so in this book, we, we did several, including Tower of Terror. Um, you know, what that means is me going through those queues and riding those attractions and literally looking at every single box, every single crate, every single book on a desk um, and and just really examining that and trying to figure out where where does it fall within, you know, within the grand scheme of things. Um, Others are much more document intensive, right? In terms of historical, you know, type type research and analysis. And in those cases, you're right. That you know, the annual reports of the Disney Company, you know, going back, I would say, especially in the 1960s and the 1970s, are just a wealth of information about, you know, about what the Disney Company planned. In a lot of cases you know, what they planned and then never actually happened, right? And I've, and I've, I've got a book, one, probably my most popular book, The Walt Disney World That Never Was, that looked at those concepts that were dreamed up. Uh, but then going back through old marketing materials uh, and other corporate filings and even getting the opportunity to talk to Imagineers about, about particular projects, um, you know, it's really a combination of, of, of all those things. And, you know, and, and, I, and I note this in my, in my backstories series, but it applies to, to, you know, kind of the Tower of Terror and, and Carousel of Progress and, and attraction chapters here as well. Uh, my goal in those type of chapters and in the backstory series is to pull together as many of these details as I, as I believe is humanly possible. Right. And, 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 and just go through those with as fine tooth and comb as you possibly can. But um, even for someone like me who, you know, who has ridden Tower of Terror, I would not want to even know how many times and riding it and walking through it, specifically looking for every detail that I can. Uh, there are still things you miss. Right. I mean, that's 
that's what's both maddening and what makes it so great uh, is that no one person or no one resource can capture everything. And part of that has to do with, with the fact that the Disney parks are you know, organic and they're constantly evolving and changing. But a lot of it is just because, man, there's just so many darn details, right? And so, um, and so but it, it's really a, a kind of a combination of, you know, you know, again, uh, I, you know, I try to make it out to my wife like it's a laborious task for me to ha have to make constant research trips to ride attractions and walk in shops countless times. Uh, but a combination of that and then just good old fashioned historical research, which, you know, given my, you know, uh, you know, I am an attorney by day. Uh, research is part of what I do. Um, uh, you know, that that I enjoy that process as well. And uh, I think the combination of all those things results in, in the information that you see here. Um, I, I tell people a lot, and, and I really mean this, I'm fortunate in that, um, you know, I, I don't write Disney books to, to, you know, to make a living, right? Um, and, and I think even the most successful of Disney authors will tell you if, if you're getting into business uh, writing Disney books, uh, you know, to make a living, you're, you're probably going to starve. Um, and so my, my kind of, you know, goal here is to put together the best possible, you know, product I can, right? And I don't care how long it takes. I don't care, you know, how much money I make. I don't care how many times I have to go through and edit the, the, the book to get it to where I think it needs to be. My goal is to create a great product. And, um, and I, you know, I, I kind of did that with my first book. And based on that great feedback I got, I was like, man, I, I really like this. This is fun to be able to share this information and, and kind of bring some Disney joy to other people's lives. And, and certainly, uh, you know, with the magical half century, probably the most fun I've had writing a book, right? Because again, it, it covered so many different fun topics that, uh, while, while time-consuming and, and at times difficult from a research perspective, uh, very rewarding uh, at the end of the day. Well, I would have to say the, the enthusiasm comes through and um, the, the level of detail is really compelling. I, I was thinking back to your chapter on the evolution of the Great Movie Ride, which also offers a really nice scene-by-scene -scene description of the um, now extinct attraction there was such um, minutia that you cover in there that was just really um, intriguing, including um, what's written on particular props. Um, I, I recognize like the, the alien scene, the crew roster um, as just one example of just really fine detail that ultimately you know, may cause a, a reader to, to smile or think, oh, wow, that's really cool. In, in the cases of those extinct attractions, is that where you were relying more on um, documents and and perhaps videos or other sources. Yes, that's correct. And and what's great is is you know the, the age we live in today with with different ride through videos that you can now watch. And and let me say this, Martin's vids. I mean that guy that site is just so valuable in terms of kind of the, the level of detail that you see in ride through experiences. Um, and then what's great is is that I had ridden at attraction many times and I may, I may take a hundred photos of each ride type guy. And so the, 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 the library of photos that I've got that I've never thought I would actually need 
to be able to go back to those photos and start dissecting things um, have, have been a lot of fun. And, and you, know, I, you know, I'm working on too many projects right now, right? I, I wish I could, I could pick one book that I wanted to work on and just work on it until it was done. But instead, I've got, you know, <laughs> maybe 10 that are in different stages of, 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 of work. Uh, but one of those is, you know, again, my first book was The Walt Disney World That Never Was. Um, I'm working on a book called The Walt Disney World That Used to Be that does focus solely on extinct attractions. Um, and uh, I just love, I love the extinct attraction concept just because, number one, I remember so many of these attractions from, from my childhood and growing up. Uh, and then number two, you know, the stories of why those attractions are, are not here anymore in a lot of cases are stories of the Disney company, right? And, and different, you know, issues and, and things they were dealing with. So, so that's one of the things I've got on the horizon, but, uh, but I couldn't help myself but to, but to get the, the great movie ride into this book. Really, I, I think first and foremost, because uh, I don't know that an attraction has ever been tied more closely with, with the park in which it resides than the great movie ride and the studios, right? I mean, even today, I have a very difficult time, you know, imagining the studios without the great movie ride. And I know there's a, there's a, there's a great attraction, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, that, that, that occupies that space now. But, uh, but it was so connected to that park um, that, I felt like, again, hey, if, if I'm going to have representation for the studios in a book about the first 50 years, I've got to talk about uh, the great movie ride. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting you talk about that park being so, uh, the, the attraction being so synonymous with the park. I think in a sense, in light of its absence, Tower of Terror has kind of filled that void also along the lines of an icon because of the Earful Tower um, not having been in the park now for several years, too. I, you know, I think you're right. And what's, it's kind of fascinating for me to think about is, is that, you know, the identity of that park has clearly changed, right? And, and it's gone from this, from this park that honors the, the entertainment industry to, you know, another topic that I was really excited about and was a lot of fun to write, um, you know, a, a park that's really based on intellectual properties, right? That, that, that is based in large part on these large film and television franchises uh, that are used to kind of kind of turn that wheel. Now, you know, I, I, you know, Tower of Terror is an IP-based attraction from the Twilight Zone television series, but I wouldn't put it into into kind of a, the same category as a as a Toy Story Land or a, or a Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. But still, that I think the face of that park has completely changed over the last few years, and uh, and a lot of really cool, exciting stuff has happened there. Uh, but, you know, I really wish there would have been some way to keep, you know, the great movie ride presence there. Um, but, but without it, I mean, listen, you know, I think you would be, you know, when I get asked a lot, you know, kind of, you know, what are, you know, my favorite attractions and, you know, what are the best attractions in Walt Disney World? And, 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 and that answer changes depending upon the day that I'm asked the question, but, um, but there are a handful including Tower of Terror, that, that, that are what I just call imagine, imaginary masterpieces, right? I mean, they, you know, from story to architecture to detail to cue to ride experience, uh, everything just flows together so perfectly. And, uh, and, and, and Tower of Terror, especially now without the great movie ride being there, 
Uh, I, you know, notwithstanding, uh, you know, the big Star Wars and Toy Story and other presents, I just can't imagine the studios without uh, the Tower of Terror. For sure. And actually, let's segue to that, because I, I wanted to ask you about the notion of intellectual property. You have that illustrated in both the form of chapter, but also at the end of the book, a really helpful um, appendix of sorts that illustrates each of the four Walt Disney World theme parks at different points in time and um, and what potential original sources they derive from um, or are connected to. Um, what were, and, and you include some really great stats in here. Like I'm a, I'm a research education researcher. I just love, you know, when you, when you can make the data really um, interesting and explicit. And I think one of the big surprises for me was realizing that IP has really always been connected to the parks. It's really been threaded in the fabric of the Magic Kingdom from, from its origins. Um, on, from your standpoint, as someone who engaged in this historical analysis of IEP at Walt Disney World, were there any big surprises that came through to you as the researcher here? Yeah, and, 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 and thank you for asking me about this, because, you know, to be honest with you, uh, this was the chapter that I was most excited about in terms of writing for, for the entire book. And the reason for that is, um, you know, Disney's use of IPs is really one of the hottest topics in kind of the, the Disney park fan community today, which is which is kind of fascinating in of itself. Um, and 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 it was just, you know, but I hadn't seen anybody really take a look at. All right. You know, people are complaining about how much Disney is using IPs, but really, how has it changed? Right. How has it evolved? And for me. There is no doubt that my biggest surprise was the what I call the significant presence of IPs from 1971. You know, at the very beginning, in 1971, when the Magic Kingdom first opened, um, and you know, because I think we, in our minds, we've kind of thought that you know it's easy to dream up that you know Disney's use of IPs. Uh, is kind of a relatively new concept, right? You know, that, that, that you know, kind of ties in with, with Star Wars and, and, and Pixar and, and, and Avatar and other, you know, large franchises like that. But if you kind of go back in time to 1971, when the Magic Kingdom first opened, I believe the park was, was at about 48% of its attractions were based on IPs, right? And, and really when you kind of dig into it, and, and as you mentioned, I include charts where we, I've got the attractions in each of these time periods I look at listed and, and, and know whether or not they're based on IPs. You know, Fantasyland, you know, is the place where, where Disney, classic Disney films come to life, right? So on opening day, you know, you did have a Peter Pan's flight and, and a Snow White's Adventures and, and, and a Cinderella carousel. Um, but you also had, and, and I thought this was fascinating, you know, the, the Davy Crockett television series and, and, and films were wildly popular um, and, and really, you know, kind of cultural phenomenons. And so you had a couple of different experiences that were, that were based on different aspects from those Davy Crockett films. And, and, and it was amazing to me, you know, the time periods I looked at were, were in the different years that parks have opened. So 1971, 1982, 1989, 1998, and then I flash forward to 2010 and then 2020 just to get those 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 time periods in. Um, you know, the the park started off like I said at 48% IP usage, and it took really until 
you know, 2020 for the attraction percentage as a whole based on IPs to exceed that number, right? I mean, it was really amazing to me that even with all this influx of IPs, it took that long to kind of get back up to the original number that the park started with in the first place. Um, now, a lot of that, you know, just ebbed and flowed, right? In 1982, you had Epcot open, which was a park that was intentionally devoid of Disney characters, right? It was, was based on, you know, human achievement culture. And so that dropped, you know, the IP usage dramatically. But in 1989, when the studios opened, you know, you, you have a park that's devoted almost completely to intellectual properties. And so it really just went back and forth, back and forth. But, but again, the biggest surprise for me was, was, was that original amount of, of, of IP usage. Uh, I think for a lot of kind of casual Disney fans, you, know, you just don't like to think about those classic Disney films, whether it's Cinderella, Snow White, Peter Pan, as being an IP, right? You know, you want to think about these monster, you know, Marvel and, and Lucasfilm franchises. But, but no, the way I looked at it was, have these characters been represented in television and films uh, before the attractions opened? And, um, and again, from the very beginning, heavy use of IPs. Um, and, and, you know, I kind of, one of the fun parts of that chapter was to really, you know, take a look from a business perspective as to why this is happening in terms of more IPs are being used now, um, you know, in the last several years. And, you know, there's just, there's just tremendous business reasons, compelling business reasons for why Disney executives and Imagineers now do that. Um, and, and, you know, some people get really upset about that and I, and I certainly understand that I, you know, for me, I love good attractions and, and, and if it's a, if it's a wholly original attraction dreamed up by Disney Imagineers, like was the case with the Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean, I love those. But, you know, anyone who has ridden Star Wars Rise of the Resistance or, you know, Slinky Dog Dash or, you know, or even Twilight Zone Tower of Terror that has an IP tie-in, you know, those are obviously great attractions as well. And so, you know, I think the focus should be on the quality of the attraction as opposed to obsessing about whether or not um, an IP is tied to it, but um, but again, kind of one of the the takeaway points from the chapter is uh, just get used to it, right? Because again, for for several reasons, uh, Disney's use of IPs is only going to continue moving forward. Right. Well, and along those lines, you write about how IP is also about minimizing risk financially, and then it makes me wonder. Well, what are the consequences associated with instances when familiar IP are still met by poor mixed reactions? I can think of when Pandora opened, how there was um, there was some disdain toward Navi River Journey because of its brevity and not necessarily having a, a very explicit storyline. Even Galaxy's Edge has been met by um, some negativity. And not, not to be a pessimist, but I am curious in terms of because there is such an emphasis on IP for, for better or worse, whatever anybody's opinion is on it. But when there is still not necessarily universal acclaim, how does that influence the, the, the company's trajectory in, in approaching future properties in the parks? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what it comes down to is is expectation level, right? You know, you know, what are people's expectations for different attractions that open? 
you know, as you just mentioned, you know, one of the primary reasons for basing attractions on intellectual property is to minimize that risk, right? So if 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 you have a a, a film franchise like Toy Story that that you know the uh, how many people went to the theaters to see the movie or how many you know how many views it gets on Disney Plus, you know, there's this built-in fan base that you know, that, you know, more likely than not, you know, will, will, will result, maybe not perfectly, but will result in increased attendance for a new attraction that you open up, you know, more people through the turnstiles, which will mean more, more merchandise sales and, and, and restaurant sales and things like that. But the flip side of that coin is when people know those characters and love those characters, you know, the expectation for the quality of the experience goes up as well, right? And so, you know, if you don't deliver on 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 the quality of the attraction to meet that expectation, then then I think you know I think you're setting yourself up for failure. But but I'll tell you this. I mean, you know, my my personal opinion on the Navi River Journey is uh, it's just not a good attraction, right? And and I'm you know, and I don't think that has anything to do with whether the IP tied to it, right? It's just you know, it's short and and not that entertaining aside from a very impressive audio animatronic character. Um, and, 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 and again, um, I think a lot of that is expectation level, but at the end of the day, if an attraction is good, then I think fans are going to flock to it regardless of whether or not an IP is tied to it or not. Uh, but it, and the, the other point is, and again, I'll, I'll start going down these rabbit holes for Star Wars Galaxy's Edge in particular, I mean, make no mistake about it. Uh, you know, the the biggest hurdle that I think Imagineers had for that was the tremendous work product that the creative team at Universal did for the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, right? I mean, you know, essentially you had the bar raised in terms of what theme park lands and experiences would look like. And, um, and I think Star Wars with Rise of the Resistance kind of met that challenge uh, and exceeded it, but maybe for the rest of the land, didn't. And, you know, you could talk about, you know, uh, you know, different stories and IPs that are tailor-made to be replicated in parks, which I would argue that 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 Harry Potter is, uh, and, and maybe with Star Wars, it's more difficult to do that. Uh, but, but again, I think it all goes back to expectation of guests, and quality of the experience that's, del that's delivered by, by Imagineers. And if it's a good attraction, I think that fans are going to flock to it. And if it's not, uh, I think you're going to get you're going to get some some negative pushback. I think those are all very fair and astute points there, Chris. And it makes me wonder, in, in terms of looking ahead um, at Walt Disney World, for for example, how would you envision properties from the Fox, the 20th Century Studios, as I guess you could call it now? Um, to to surface in the parks because now Disney has that they want to leverage it but there also has to be a certain degree of intentionality behind what brands make sense for what spaces and ultimately in what form yeah that's a yeah that's a that's another great question and and I'll answer it in, in two ways uh, with the second part being I don't know how in the world they go about implementing many of those properties into the parks just from a from a thematic standpoint and, and kind of how you make it work with, with what the Disney parks represent. But the first part of that is I have no doubt that they will find a way to do it. And that is, is due in large part to the massive purchase price they paid for Fox, right? I mean, you don't go out and spend 
you know, upwards of $70 billion to acquire a, a, a group of assets and not try to monetize those in as many different ways as you can. And one of the easiest ways traditionally that Disney has been able to monetize different, you know, different IP assets that it's acquired were to, to implement those into the parks. So, you know, I, I think it will happen. Certainly, I just don't know how they effectively go about doing it. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I talk about this a lot in different, different interviews that I do. Um, and even though I don't like talking about it, and that's, you know, we all, pe people who are huge Disney fans, we love the parks and we love kind of the, the nostalgia and the innocence and the hope and those smiles that you get when you enter the parks. Uh, but we forget that at the end of the day, Disney is a company. It's a corporation that has a board of directors and shareholders that that, that board is responsible to. Uh, and the goal at the end of the day is to make money. Right. And, you know, you know, if, if the choice is between making more money by implementing a Fox IP into the parks that may not fit perfectly versus not doing that just to maintain kind of the thematic integrity of, of different lands. Um, I think that's a losing battle, unfortunately. Right. Because, again, you, you've acquired this massive asset. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to put it to work for them now. You know, my hope is is that um, is that you know Disney executives are, are are smart enough to realize that the brand they have built with Disney and the legions of fans that they've built by virtue of of the quality of the attractions and experiences and the cast members, um, you know, they won't alter that or do anything to to harm that. Uh, and I'm confident that that's the case, right? I, I don't mean to be doom and gloom because I I am absolutely confident that 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 will be the case. But uh, you, know, you kind of got to be willing to experience some change as well in the process. Uh, and, 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 and again, as kind of a classic Disney fan, I have a hard time, you know, accepting Disney change uh, very well, but, uh, but, but it's inevitable. And so I try to prepare myself for it uh, as best I can. I think that makes good sense. And it's not like there isn't precedence either, right? Because there were, you know, Star Tours existed long before Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm, certainly in the case of Pandora, a uh, Fox property through that partnership with James Cameron and Lightstorm Entertainment that uh, became its own land. So I think there's definitely um, prior examples of how that's come to be for outside properties. And, and now they have this catalog to choose from. So it will be exciting and, and really intriguing more than anything to see how that um, coexists um, with some of the other assets they have under their uh, umbrella. Yeah, and, and again, I know there's been some criticism of, 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 of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge and, and of, of Pandora, the world of Avatar, and Disney's Animal Kingdom. Uh, and I get that, and I understand it, especially from an attraction standpoint. But, man, those lands are great in a lot of ways, too, right? I mean, they, they really are extremely immersive and so many fun details. And, uh, and if, if that's the type of standard that the Disney company is going to hold itself to in terms of new park additions. And then, then I think we're, you know, and I, and I talk about this in the, in the, in the IP chapter, man, what a fantastic time to be a theme park fan, right? It, it, it's like a theme park arms race between Disney and universal where you've got these new attractions and land and cutting edge experiences that are happening on a year to year basis. And, 
uh, and we get to enjoy all of it. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful and optimistic about the things that are, that are still to come. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And it makes me think of how, as you're pointing to, alluding to earlier in the case of Wizarding World of Harry Potter, that, you know, I think served as a boost for Disney to think, okay, we have to step our, up our game and, and deliver on what eventually would be Galaxy's Edge. You know, even thinking back three decades now to the origins of Hollywood Studios and that, how that um, in some ways uh, stemmed from the, the competition with the emergence of Universal uh, Studios in Orlando. So there, there have been these historical examples of where uh, a little bit of um, a little bit of a rivalry or wanting to um, be their best ultimately results in, in Disney knocking it out of the park. Yeah, I mean, listen, steel sharpens steel, right? And and it may not be fun to 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 be an Imagineer or a creative person at Universal working in that environment when when you've got these huge you know experiences and, and cutting edge attraction opening by your competition uh, that that pushes you to be better. But again, for us, for theme park fans who just get to be neutral bystanders who go and experience what what each of those teams have created, uh, man, it's just a great time to be a to be a theme park fan generally, and certainly a great time to be a fan of Walt Disney World, uh, you know, rolling into the 50th anniversary. Yeah, you got that right. Well, Chris, kind of thinking um, about what you've created here as a, as a package of fun stories and uh, recollections and interesting insights about Walt Disney World, what do you hope readers come away with upon either checking out an individual chapter or perhaps the whole book? Yeah, that's, you know, number one, I just hope that it, it puts a smile on people's faces, right? You know, I hope, I hope that they, they, they get a kick out of reading some of these different stories. I hope that they learn something new that they didn't already know about, about uh, you know, the, the, the Walt Disney World theme park. And I think most importantly for me, my hope is that by reading these stories, it inspires you know, people and families to make more trips to Walt Disney World and, and create even more memories over the next 50 years, right? To to essentially continue to support the parks and and continue to get people to, you know, what I, what I call look up, down, and around and, and start taking notice of all these wonderful details and wonderful stories that, uh, that the Disney Imagineers have created for us uh, throughout the theme parks. Very nice. Well, you, you alluded to this a bit earlier. I generally ask guests, okay, what uh, what projects are, are next on your docket? And you made reference to uh, one of them. You said something along the lines of the the Walt Disney World that used to be. What what are some uh, titles and products that we can expect from you in the in the years to come, perhaps? At least what you feel like you can disclose at that at yeah, this point, right? <laughs> yeah, that, you know that's you know it's funny because you know I, I don't want to go through the list of ten because who knows what I'll actually get to the finish line. But but I would say the projects that I that I'm that I have closest to the finish line right now are you know what we just talked about the Walt Disney World that used to be that man I just can't tell you how excited I am about that book. Um, you know again you I think that you've seen some other resources out there that maybe just you know, touch on some of these extinct attractions at a very surface level, maybe talk about one or two. But again, I'm all about creating definitive resources. And and, and that's what my goal for this for this book will be. And, and and much like the Walt Disney World that never was, you know, the stories behind 
you know, what happened to those attractions are just fascinating above and beyond just remembering what these fun attractions were. Uh, you know, the other, you know, the other project that, that, that I'm making great headway on is, is the next Backstories and Magical Secrets book, which will be devoted to the studios. Um, and, and I'm excited to kind of get that, get that one across the finish line. As anyone who's read, you know, the first two volumes of, of that series knows, which, which collectively cover the Magic Kingdom, uh, man, those books are a ton of fun, but they are also a ton of work, uh, you know, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of research and a lot of fun, you know, uh, you know, uh, visits to the parks to, to kind of capture everything. Uh, but I'm so excited to get that one finished up um, and have a lot of other stuff in process. I better hold off on mentioning that, mentioning those things for now. But uh, but like I said before, I, I, I do this purely for fun and uh, and and to help, you know, maybe put some smiles on the faces of other Disney fans. And as long as my keep my books keep doing that, which knock on wood, uh, you know, they all have, have received just just humbling, uh, you know, responses for me, just, just overwhelmingly positive. Uh, I'm going to keep churning them out and, and, and hope everybody keeps, keeps enjoying them. Well, something tells me um, that that will be the case in terms of the enjoyment factor. And I know in terms of uh, the Walt Disney World that used to be, um, there are a number of uh, extinct, extinct attractions that have closed over the past decade or so that, um, that I really miss. And I, I hope to see in the book can you provide a tease at least of a cup one or two topics that you cover in that absolutely and really uh i joke with my wife there's one attraction that really caused this obsession for me right this disney obsession you know there's one attraction that really is the reason why we spend i would not want to know how much money on disney trips each year and and, and it's really kind of sparked all this for me and, and it was 20,000 leagues under the sea. Um, you know, I, I first visited Walt Disney World uh, in 1983 uh, when I was I was I was seven years old. And, uh, you know, you know, being a Disney Channel kid growing up and, and, and watching that 1954 live action movie with, with Kirk Douglas and James Mason, you know, when I saw that submarine and actually being able to step inside that submarine and go on this, this fantastical, you know, voyage, it, it, you know, it, it blurred kind of the line between, you know, your, 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 your childhood imagination and reality. And I was just fascinated by that, by that attraction. And so, um, you know, you know, and, 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 it, and to this day, if someone asks me what my favorite attraction is, I'll tell them it's 20,000 leagues under the sea, no, no, no doubt. Um, but really, again, you know, from a historical analysis, you know, standpoint, when you start looking at the reasons why that attraction closed, it, it just makes for fascinating stories because, you know, a lot of people's knee-jerk reactions are that, you know, if attractions are extinct, that means they weren't popular, right? And, and Disney closed them down. And that's certainly the case in some circumstances, but in others, like in 20,000 Leagues, that is not the case. You know, the, the, the attraction is still overwhelmingly popular. Um, and, and so you'll have, we'll have a huge chapter that, 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 that looks at all aspects of 20,000 leagues under the sea, uh, horizons, another fan favorite attraction, um, you know, so many fun extinct attractions, you know, you, you know, uh, you know, the Plaza Swan boats, right. You know, you know, it's hard to imagine today, these large swan shaped boats floating around Cinderella castle, but, but it actually happened. Uh, so as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm very excited about that book. And, and uh, you know, if you're a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea fan uh, like me, then, then I think that chapter alone will be worth the price uh, to, uh, to get. 
That's awesome. I, I can't say I experienced that attraction uh, myself. I didn't go to Walt Disney World for the first time until 99, but I experienced Submarine Voyage at Disneyland um, in the late 90s um, before it closed. And, and I know, this, you know, despite the distinctions, nonetheless, it, um, it's a very unique type of experience um, for, for a young child to, to go into a, a a quote unquote submarine and well, really a submarine, but um, not necessarily diving 20,000 leagues, but nonetheless <laughs> feeling like that, right? Through the, you know, seeing the, the, the really diverse sea creatures. And oh my gosh, I remember being scared to no end as a four-year-old and seeing that squid, so. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I try, you know, before I start working on a book, I try to, I try to ask the question, well, why am I writing this, right? And and, 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 you know, the first answer to all that, all those questions I ask about the different books I write is, is man, I think it'll be a lot of fun. Um, but, but for the Walt Disney World that used to be, you know, it's really two primary reasons. You know, number one is to provide just a nostalgic look back for people who did get a chance to ride the attract, these different attractions years ago before they closed, right? And kind of take a, take a walk down memory lane. But the second reason is to introduce those attractions and uh, to people who may have never gotten that opportunity, right? And to and to help educate them, provide them with those fun stories that, again, are really stories of the, of the Disney company and Walt Disney World uh, itself. For sure. And, and it's really remarkable to think of the lasting impact of some of these attractions. And thankfully, we can relive them. Um, via watching videos on YouTube and some great documentaries of sorts that have emerged over recent years. And I think a book like yours as a complementary resource and perhaps even covering um, new ground that hasn't been examined in other spaces really lends itself um, to honoring that history and to um, really uh, enticing a new generation of people to learn more. Absolutely, and that's certainly the goal, and, um, and 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 it's my hope that 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 book specifically will, will certainly do that. Cool, very good. Well, Chris, I want to uh, before we fully conclude, I have a bunch of Disney-related uh, opinion questions for you that I ask every guest. Um, there are some music ones, a few book ones, and then a random question. Uh, so, are you ready to answer them? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Well, on the music front, I'm wondering what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Oh, there, there is no doubt uh, about the answer to this question. And I think it's probably, you know, the, the, the most famous and successful Disney soundtrack ever, which was Mary Poppins. Um, you know, Mary Poppins is probably my favorite film even today but but as a kid certainly enjoyed it and man just those sherman brothers classics um you know uh, even today yeah i can put that soundtrack on and 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 it, it, it does nothing but bring a smile to my face uh, you know just just what a wonderful you know wonderful set of songs that were included in that film for sure although i must say if i hear feed the birds i'll probably be uh, tempted to cry because that one has that effect <laughs> Yes, that, that's right. So that's the one that, you know, again, and everybody knows kind of the story in terms of that being that being Walt's favorite. Uh, but but man, I mean, if you want to feel like you haven't accomplished much in your life, just look at what the Sherman brothers accomplished and, it, and it'll make you feel like you need to go out and, and, and do something special. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Uh, shifting over to this question, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Hmm. That, that's a good question. Let's see. I, you know, I'm going to answer this and say and answer it because it, 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 it's stuck in my head quite often because um, it is my favorite Disney song. And so I try to listen to it periodically, especially if I'm if I'm having a bad day or feeling down. And it's uh, uh, second star to the right uh, from the Peter Pan soundtrack. Um, I mean, just I mean, just nostalgic innocent um you know for me you know the peter pan film i think and kind of that staying a kid at heart is you know that concept i think is tied more closely to the disney park than maybe any other film and concept and anytime i hear that very short song um you know all of a sudden i feel better right and i and i feel kind of that hope and joy uh that that i did when i first you know watched the film as a kid and so I listen to that very often, and and because of that intentional effort, it it often does get stuck in my head, including you know within the last within the last week. That's a touching one. Have you heard the rendition of it? It's probably a couple decades ago, a uh, t- couple decades old now, but it was in the Peter Pan sequel, Return to Neverland. Uh, Singer songwriter Jonathan Brook um, had a really nice rendition of it, more contemporary, but um, ultimately kind of very much honoring the original. Absolutely. I loved it. It was, it was, again, it was, as you, it was very unique, right. As compared to the original, but, but I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. That's a great song. Um, third music question for you, Chris, what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? So maybe not Mary Poppins. (laughs) Yeah. I will say, um, I think the music is underrated but maybe not as underrated as the film itself. And I, and I, and I don't think it gets near the love that it needs to. And that's tangled. Um, you know, uh, our kids love that film and, and the songs I think are great. Like Mama knows best is, is one of our favorites, <laughs> you know, to sing, sing as a family. And I think, I think the entire family, including the music is very underrated. Yeah. You know, I, I I've heard that in terms of, like, you know, Frozen gets all the attention, um, oftentimes in this more contemporary Disney age, but the, the songs in Tangled um, are arguably quite as good, if not in some ways, um, even even stronger. And yeah, Mother Knows Best, my gosh, that's just so much fun and such clever wordplay as well. Absolutely. That, that, and, and, you know, what I like about those songs, too, is that they're so they're so easy to sing along to, you know, especially, you know, with with, with children. So uh, we, we have watched that film many times and have, and have, and have sung the songs, uh, you know, more times than I, than I care to count. Very good. Um, a couple of book related questions for you, Chris. Uh, what's the most Disney book that you have read? You know, so. This is kind of a cheat answer because I've read this book two or three times already, and, and I'm reading it again. Uh, but but my favorite Imagineer, uh, hands down, is Mark Davis. Um, you know, just what a brilliant man who, you know, who you know really had two separate careers in animation and Imagineering. Uh, you know, and and both of which he would have been a Disney legend on without the other. 
but the Pete Doctor two two part book, Mark Davis in his own words, is just I mean, it's very expensive. I understand that. And so I know a lot of people may have not had the opportunity to get it. But it is worth every penny, uh, and 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 I've been through it several times, and I'm going through it again now. But but I could not recommend uh, that Mark Davis book um, any higher. Yeah, you you and me both. Um, I think it's one of the best Disney books ever released. And uh, Chris Merritt, one of the co-authors on the book, he was on a previous episode of uh, Notably Disney, and it's really a labor of love because of the relationship that both he and Pete Doctor had cultivated with, with Mark and Alice and was able to translate that into um, that two volume book. So I agree with you. It's expensive, but boy, is it worth it. Oh, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, I think it's, you know, what, 130, $140 on Amazon. I mean, clearly that's a lot of money, but uh uh, the hours of enjoyment I've gotten out of that book and will continue to get out of it, uh, man, I just, I, I cannot recommend it any, any higher. Very good. Well, um, the second book related question for you, I'm not sure if you'll want to answer it because it could be a, a, a tease or a spoil, spoiler of sorts, but um, I asked this, if you could write a Disney book on any topic, uh, what would it be about? Oh man, that's tough. You know, what's really tough about that is, is I've got so many in process that really, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of writing about anything that I want now. Uh, but I'll say, you know, a ton of biography, biographies have been written about, about, about Walt and Roy Disney, uh, you know, but, but I would love to, to take some type of spin maybe on those that haven't been, haven't been, you know, addressed before, but 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 clearly, like a lot of Disney fans, kind of the the story of those Disney brothers. Uh, I know Aaron Goldberg did a did a really cool uh, you know more children specific book a few years ago. But but I would love to look at something uh, from from that aspect if I ever got the chance. Very nice. And uh, your random Disney question, and this is the last one. Um, and ironically, this has a, this may have a tie into your book and I didn't intend it for it to be until I knew about, uh, the Walt Disney world that used to be. Um, so here's the question for you, Chris, what is your favorite entertainment related experience of Walt Disney world yesteryear? Oh man, that, that is a great question. Um, so this is this is gonna this is gonna sound silly, uh, but the the Aladdin Royal Caravan Parade uh, that used to roll through the the the, the studios, um, and that that may sound crazy, but you know if you if if anybody ever experienced it, you know, they would tell you kind of how unique it was. But even kind of going back, if if you didn't get to see it and can kind of watch some film of it or even pictures some crazy props and, and, and unique things that, uh, you know, I, I'm big on kind of, you know, what is the non kind of, you know, homogenized, you know, everything cookie cutter Disney looks the same. And that parade certainly did not. It was very unique. And, and I wish there was a way I could go back in time and, and, and see it again. That's, that's a cool choice. You know, I, I never experienced it, but if I'm not mistaken, I feel like the camels from the parade ended up popping up at Magic Carpets of Aladdin at Magic You are Kingdom. exactly correct. You are yeah? exactly okay. correct. Very good. Yes, absolutely. Those, those are the camels from that parade there at that attraction. 
Oh, awesome. See, I feel like I got a gold star now. So <laughs> see, this is where the random Disney knowledge actually makes sense and, and has value. And I think you've really demonstrated that in, in, on full display in your book. So <laughs> <Welcome> to... <laughs> listen, when it comes to Disney details, I love that stuff. So anytime I hear somebody like pick up, you know, know a reference like that, you get you get two gold stars in my book. Very good. Very good. Well, uh, finally, Chris, uh, how can listeners make sure to follow your work um, you on social media and ultimately purchase your books. Sure. So I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter at uh, C Smith Disney. Uh, you can get any of my books uh, on Amazon, or you can also visit my website, uh, chrissmithbooks.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, any of those outlets, especially uh, Twitter, you know, you'll see kind of what I'm working on. And you know, if you like, you know, Disney details and, and old historic construction photos, you know, that's, that's certainly the place to, to, to check me out. Wonderful. Well, um, many congrats to you, Chris, on a very fun book. Um, I have no doubt that I will be eagerly awaiting and probably pre-ordering um, your forthcoming titles um, once they become available. Um, yeah, Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary. It's, it's, it's very much upon us. And the book, again, is called A Magical Half Century, Stories Celebrating Walt Disney World's First 50 Years. Thank you so much again for your time, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you again, Chris, for coming on Notably Disney. I know I couldn't be more excited to take my next trip to the world, as I'm sure many of you are as well, and hearing about the history of the resort through these fun finds and undiscovered stories really enhances that anticipation. So I encourage all of you to check out A Magical Half Century, stories celebrating Walt Disney World's first 50 years. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company. 